For since there is envy and strife among you, are you not worldly in living like mere men? Yes, you are. They were worldly. They were living like unbelievers in the sense they were not getting along with one another. And some of the marks of worldliness are quarrels and envy and strife. Those are classic symptoms. Hello, and welcome to Search the Scriptures, the Bible teaching ministry of Dr. Carl Brogy. Dr. Brogy is the senior pastor of Community Bible Church in Beaufort, South Carolina. Today, Pastor Carl will begin his study in the book of James, chapter 4, as he addresses the cause and problem of worldliness in verses 1 through 10. We will see that one of James's many points in this chapter is that a belief that behaves is what pleases the Lord. Open your Bibles with you this morning, James chapter 4. If you are joining us for the first time, we've been working our way chapter by chapter through this short little book. It's only 108 verses, and we want to pick up where we left off before Easter. The epistle of James, it's written by a, a very practical man. He gives us a practical letter because he wants to take the instruction he gives and put it into our practice. If you remember, James is the half-brother of the Lord Jesus, and for him, our creed needs to be translated into our conduct. Our doctrine needs to be transfused by duty, a changed life. He wants a belief that behaves. That's what pleases the Lord. And so he's continuing on that theme as we step into chapter 4, where he addresses three thorny issues in the Christian community. We're going to look at the very first one this morning in verses 1 through 10, and then in the weeks that will follow, we'll look at the next two. So first, he focuses on the problem of worldliness, worldliness in the church, in the body of Christ. And he not only highlights the problem, he gives us the cure. So you can see, if you're online, there's a note-taking outline that is available for you. The title of the sermon is Combating Worldliness. I want to begin by reading the first 10 verses. What is the source of quarrels and conflicts among you? Is not the source your pleasures that wage war in your members? You lust and do not have, so you commit murder. You are envious and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask with wrong motives so that you may spend it on your pleasures. You adulteresses, do you not know that friendship with the world is hostility toward God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you think that the scriptures, the scripture speaks to no purpose? He jealously desires the spirit which he has made to dwell in us. But he gives a greater grace. Therefore, it says, God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Submit, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts. You double-minded, be miserable and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned into mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves in the presence of the Lord and he will exalt you. Now, if you're using the note-taking outline, we want to begin this morning where James starts with the cause of worldliness. This section opens up with the cause of worldliness. You say, what is worldliness? Very simple. Worldliness is living like the people of this world. It's living like a lost person. In fact, in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, 
you might want to put in the margin next to verse 1, 1 Corinthians 3, 1 to 3, Paul told the Christians there in that city that they were living carnal, worldly kinds of lives as exemplified in their behavior. He said, you're living like mere men. Let me read that section to you. And I, brethren, could not speak to you as spiritual men, but as to men of flesh, as to infants in Christ. He's speaking about what he did when he first went to Corinth. Paul, as the Acts of the Apostles tells us, planted that church. And so as brand new believers, he didn't give them the heavy-duty meat truths of the faith, but just pure milk. Milk is used to describe the purity of God's Word, but sometimes, as in this context, it's used to describe the simple truths of God's Word. I fed you milk, not solid food. For you are not yet ready. In fact, you are still not ready because you are still fleshly. For since there is envy and strife among you, are you not worldly and living like mere men? Yes, you are. They were worldly. They were living like unbelievers in the sense they were not getting along with one another. And some of the marks of worldliness are quarrels and envy and strife. Those are classic symptoms. Some of them were suing one another. Some of them were fighting in church. Some of them even abused the Lord's table and got drunk in the process. Now, notice how James begins. What is the source of quarrels and conflicts among you? Like a parent who steps in the middle of two brothers who are having an argument. What's this all about? Who started this? How did you get into this mess to begin with? Now, if you'll notice, the word quarrels and conflicts are in the plural. You might want to circle the letter S at the end of those two words. It tells me that he's not looking at an isolated event, but at a chronic condition. In fact, the Greek New Testament translates the word quarrels as translating the word polemos. You can hear our word polemic in it, right? You know what a polemic is? It is an argument. It's a strong written verbal attack of sorts. And so the Greek word, though, for polemos refers to a war, not to an isolated battle, but to an entire war, a, a big conflict. In addition, he translates a second word rendered conflicts. And that's a word that refers to a particular battle, to a skirmish within a larger word. And so together, these two words are describing this ongoing state, this ongoing outburst of hostility that was seen in these various fellowships. Now, both of these words, being in the plural, reminds us, again, this was not an isolated event. This was an ongoing problem. But I want you to notice, too, that it happens among you. Before we look at James' answer to the question that he asked in verse 1, we need to make sure we understand who the among you are in the context. If you turn back or look over on the page, depending on your typeset in chapter 3 and in verse 1, he opens that chapter by saying, let not many of you become teachers, my brethren. And then here in chapter 4, if you look ahead to verse 11, he says, do not speak against one another, brethren. And so everything sandwiched between 3.1 and 4.11 are dealing with believers, genuine, born-again brethren, a term reserved in the New Testament for those who have met Jesus Christ. Does that surprise you? 
It shouldn't. The psalmist said, behold how good and pleasant it is when brothers dwell together in unity. And he says that because it's not always true. True believers ought to love one another and live in harmony with one another. Now, when you study the New Testament, it quickly becomes apparent that the New Testament church was not a perfect church. We've already noted the Corinthian church, where they were competing with each other, suing one another. Some were living sexually immoral. Of course, the difference between them and a pagan is their disobedience brought God's divine discipline because those who've been born again, whom he loves in that special way, he disciplines. You read the church of Galatia. They're practicing Christian cannibalism. Paul says they're biting and devouring one another. You read his letter to the church at Ephesus, which is one of the healthiest churches in all the New Testament. But they had some issues with spiritual unity. And don't forget, of course, the church at Philippi. In fact, let's turn to that. Let's go to, to Philippians chapter 4. You're in James, so go to the left. Right after First and Second Corinthians, you have a number of different books in the New Testament. Uh, you have those books that begin with the letter T, all the T books in the Bible, First and Second Thessalonians, First and Second Timothy, Titus, they're all found together. And it's followed by short little, four little short books, Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, and Colossians, all right? Philippians chapter 4. Uh, one of my professors in seminary used to call this chapter the, the mental health chapter of the New Testament. And he had a lot of wise, exegetical advice on how to live well in our thought lives from this chapter. Look at verse 1. Therefore, my beloved brethren, whom I long to see, my joy and crown, in this way stand firm in the Lord, my beloved. If you've been here for any period of time, we preach the Scripture verse by verse, and so we look for, among other things, key structural words. And so whenever you see the word therefore, you want to ask, what is the word therefore, therefore? Well, in this case, it's a hinge verse that not only looks back, but it also looks ahead. It looks at what he has just said, and it's going to look forward at what he is about to say. And the connection is clear. The idea that our Christian citizenship is in heaven is the admonition in which to stand firm in the Lord. Someday your judging king is coming back and you will stand eyeball to eyeball with him and give an account at the judgment of the just. Verse 2, I urge Eodia and Syntyche to live in harmony in the Lord. So he references these two women, Eodia and Syntyche. And it's really a rather fascinating verse. If you read Paul, it's interesting not only what he does say, but sometimes what he does not say. And sometimes I wish, Paul, what did you have in mind? I wish I could dialogue with him. Maybe I'll have that opportunity since we have an eternity in heaven. Maybe Jesus will just explain the scriptures to us. But he does say a lot here that you do not want to miss. We know there's two women, two female names, Yodia and Syntyche, and we know that they're at odds with one another, and so they're admonished to live in harmony. If you have the NASB with marginal notes, it says literally in the margin, to be of the same mind. But please understand, to be of the same mind does not necessarily mean to be of the same opinion. And do not forget that in the first century, very few Christians owned a personal copy of Scripture. You might even have just a page of Scripture. 
And so Paul says to Timothy, don't neglect the public reading of Scripture. And so when this portion of Scripture was read, you know these two ladies, they had to about fallen out of their seat. Now you're nodding off in a service, and I know people nod off in here. Sometimes it's medication, and I get it, and they'll apologize to me. But sometimes they were just up too late last night, not prioritizing the Lord's day. You know, a day biblically starts at sundown, and so a good way to prepare yourself for the Lord's day is to start with sundown. And so you've got this one woman over here and probably the other woman over here. And all of a sudden, like a lightning bolt, their names are read. I urge Yodia and Syntyche to live in harmony in the Lord. It had to be like a direct hit to them. When their names are read, he urges them. He's not threatening them. He is urging them in the Lord to get along. Now, it's interesting that the Apostle Paul names names. Now, sometimes he doesn't, but very often he does. And there are some pastors who think they're somehow more spiritual because they never name names. But the New Testament actually gives us a pattern of naming names to protect the sheep. And in this particular case, he's not naming the names of false teachers, but actually to godly women. Uh, When you come to passages like 2 Corinthians, he doesn't name names there when he speaks of false prophets and false apostles, and rightly so, because under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, he's giving us some marks of those false teachers so that we think. He wants us to understand the, the character, the conduct, and the creed of a false teacher so when they come along, we can spot them. And so in this case, he names... Yodia and Syntyche. Now, it's interesting because he doesn't initially tell us what the problem is. We don't know specifically why it is that they were not getting along. But we do know, one, that they were believers. In fact, we know that because he admonishes them, notice, in the Lord. And then in verse 3, he tells us their names are written in the book of life. So while it's not clearly stated uh, what the problem is, we know there are believers in Christ, and we know, too, that they're charter members. You say, how do you know that? Because Paul refers to them as my fellow workers. Now, if you've read the Acts, you know that Paul was the one that God used to church to plant the church in Philippi. And so they were there in that river. By that river, some of you have actually stood at that river with me in Philippi, and it was a magnificent place, and the Jewish women met there. Now, to have a synagogue, you had to have, under Jewish law, at least 10 men. But there weren't any men, just some women who were meeting by a river. And that was important because they acknowledged as Jewish women the priority that God places on male leadership. Men and women are equal. But while we are equal, we have different roles. In the home, the husband is called the head, and the woman is called to submit to her leadership, not to a dictator, but to someone who is to love her as Christ loved the church. Even so, in the church, men and women are equal, but God gives different roles. There are some things that only men can do in the church. There are some things only women can do. And so, recognizing male leadership, and let me say parenthetically, if you're listening to me online and you have your family under a female pastor— You are doing them a great 
disservice. Number one, because that woman is in disobedience. It doesn't matter that she says she was called. God didn't call her. God's will never contradicts his word. God said, a woman can't serve as a pastor. Read 1 Timothy 2 and 3. I have a series of five messages on it, and I walk through every text in the Old and New Testament that people use to defend that position. But here were these women, and of course, we only know the names of one of these women from the Acts, and her name was Lydia. But these women were at the start. They were there when Paul started this church. They were his fellow workers, for he was not that long, of course, in Philippi. So somehow they got involved. They came to know the Lord in a personal way. But beyond their names, beyond the fact that they were believers, beyond the fact that they were founding members, so to speak, we don't know the specific problem. Nonetheless, we know it was not a doctrinal problem. You say, well, how do you know that? Because whenever there's a doctrinal problem in the Scripture, the Apostle Paul hits it head on, and he teaches us that principle. In 2 Thessalonians 3 and in Titus 3, that if someone has erred from sound doctrine, you rebuke him once, you rebuke him a second time, and then if he doesn't listen, he is to be put out. So we're not talking about doctrinal error. We're talking about some kind of petty differences. I've been in the ministry for 43 years, and in Bible-believing, Bible-teaching churches, rarely is there some kind of division in the church over a doctrinal issue. It is almost always some personality, some petty little issue where people are not getting along. Now, the name Yodia in Greek literally means sweet fragrance. And syntyche is a Greek word that means easy to get along with. <laughs> I think it's interesting. So here is sweet fragrance and easy to get along with, and they're having problems with each other. One of my professors at Dallas Seminary, Dr. Dwight Pentecost, he called them odious and soon touchy. In either case, how do you account for this problem? Well, people can get out of fellowship with the Lord, get their feelings hurt, in fact, in almost any local Bible-believing church, you have some real screwballs sometimes who come. Dr. Harry Ironside was asked, Dr. Ironside, he was a great preacher who lived in the first half of the 20th century, one of the great expository preachers of his day. He said, how do you account for all the nuts in the church? A pastor asked him this. He said, where there is light, there is bugs. <laughs> I think he's right. Now, back here to James chapter 4, all right? James 4, I was just trying to remind you that the New Testament church was not a perfect church. And of course, whenever we have conflicts, inevitably, we want to blame someone or something. When James asks this penetrating question, what is the source of quarrels and conflicts among you? And he answers with a rhetorical question. Children, a rhetorical question is a question that's asked that has an implied answer. Is it not, is not the source of your pleasures that wage war in your members? Is that not the source? Yes, it is. The source is your pleasures. And your pleasures are rooted in two causes, your conflicts and your quarrels. So if you're taking notes, first put there on the outline, point A, worldliness is rooted in illicit pleasures. 
Now, the word pleasures here in verse 1 is actually a neutral term. Its meaning is determined by its context. Sometimes it can refer to an evil pleasure, an evil desire, or sometimes it can refer to a good pleasure, a good desire. And of course, here it's being used negatively. And he's putting great emphasis on your pleasures. He's talking about a person who wants to do what they want to do versus what God would have them to do. In one word, they are selfish. They are self-centered. I want what I want when I want. It. And life doesn't work that way. Such thinking, whether it's in your home or your church, only creates division. And so he says in verse 2, you lost and do not have, so you commit murder. Now the word lust in Greek can be used, again, negatively or can be used positively. It's determined by the context. And the word, by the way, just means a strong desire. People often associate it with sex. It can refer to sexual lust. There is a lust for food that some people have, the scripture says. And sometimes there's a lust for a position that someone might want in the church that they're not qualified to fill. It's used in all kinds of different contexts. And sometimes, as we'll see before we're finished, it's used positively. It just means a strong desire. Now, when lost people have a super strong desire, and they're incredibly selfish and self-centered, and they want their way and they don't get it, sometimes they will murder. They will express their desire through murder. Now, Paul is not using it that way any more than James or Jesus. They're using it figuratively. They're using it in this grammatical context in a figurative sense. Think your way through this for a moment. I don't think he's envisioning someone coming to church with a sword and someone with whom they disagree with, they run them through, much less taking a gun in our day and killing someone. He's describing here an attitude of the heart. And there are many clues that tell you that right off. Right off, it's what we call in Greek a present active indicative. In other words, it doesn't refer to a completed action like you pull the trigger. He's describing an ongoing spirit of murder, ongoing behavior, that there's this outward action that is driven by this inward desire. Jesus spoke in these terms as well. He said, yes, people can commit physical adultery, but he also said that people can commit spiritual adultery. If a man looks at a woman to lust at her, he has committed adultery in his heart. And so it is with murder. He said, you've heard that the ancients were told you shall not commit murder, and whoever commits murder shall be liable to the court. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother shall be guilty before the court. In 1 John 3.15, John uses it figuratively. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer. And now James is using it that way within the body of Christ. And so a person can kill with their thoughts. They can assassinate someone else's character with their words. Now mark the progression. You lust, that is you have this strong self-centered desire. And when you don't get your own way in a figurative sense, you murder. And James says this is all rooted in your pleasures. Now, as a pastor, uh, I have to make a lot of major decisions, not just for my own life, sometimes for my family, and sometimes for this church at large. And one of the verses that has really helped me 
in making decisions that I would stay in the will of God is Psalm 37.4. In fact, why don't you turn there? The Psalms, if you're new to the Bible, they're about dead center. So just find the middle of your Bible. You'll probably be in Psalms, unless you have some big encyclopedia in the back. And go to Psalm 37 and verse 4, and I'll show you in a moment how it's connected to what we're discussing here in James. There are some areas of life that I don't really even have to pray about that I don't have to debate whether or not I'm going to do it because God has said specifically what he wants us to do. One lady years ago came to me and she said, God has called me to divorce my husband in order to marry this man that I'm living with. I said, God has not called you to do that. God's word and God's will always dovetail. They never contradict. So there are some things that are no-brainers because God has said specifically what his will and his plan is. Now, sometimes it's not always clear. Uh, you are headed off to college, and you got a full scholarship to a school in Michigan and another in Massachusetts. Both are giving you a full ride. Both are equal distance from your home. Which school should I go to? Both are rated on the same level, both top schools. Well, certainly one component of discovering God's will in these areas that are not expressly defined is a verse like Psalm 37.4. If you're coming to the basic discipleship course, I'm going to give you a hundred passages that every Christian should memorize, and this is on the list. Delight yourself in the Lord, and he will give you the desires of your heart. You see that word desires, by the way, in the Greek Old Testament, we call it the Septuagint because Jews read the Old Testament in Greek at one point because they lost their ability to read Hebrew. It's the same word that we just saw for pleasures in James chapter 4. Now, I know some people read a verse like this, and they say, you got to be kidding me. You mean to tell me if I delight myself in the Lord, he is going to give, you, give me my desires? But please understand, in the context, God reveals the emphasis is not on my desires, but on my delight. It's structured that way in Hebrew, but even if you didn't know Hebrew, the context draws it out. Look at the verse right before it. Trust in the Lord and do good. Dwell in the land and cultivate faithfulness. Look at verse 5 right after it. Commit your way to the Lord. Trust also in him, and he will do it. So on either side of verse 4 is this admonition to cultivate faithfulness and to commit your way to the Lord. And when you spend your time delighting yourself in the Lord, then the desires that are in your heart are coming from him. They are originating from him. So he puts a strong desire in your heart as to the pathway that you should take. And so the desires are not evil, they are not self-centered, they are not selfish. These are desires that come from God. Every pastor has to do a lot of marriage counseling. It's inevitable in our day. In fact, for many people, the entry level to the church, why do you come to CBC? Our home is in a crisis. Rarely a week goes by when I do not hear that. And you get them in there, and you say, well, what's the problem? You know, and some of the things I've heard, you know, I mean, we think these are jokes the way the toothpaste is squeezed or the toilet paper is rolled, but it's not. I've heard them literally in my office. And I begin with, are you delighting yourself in the Lord? Remember, when we spend our time delighting ourselves in the Lord, 
then the desires that are in our own hearts are coming from Him. If you enjoyed today's message, you can also order a CD or DVD copy by calling Search the Scriptures at 877-787-7478 and requesting program James 009. Maybe you have a question you would like to ask Pastor Brogy personally. You can do that on Tuesdays between 11 and noon Eastern during his live call-in program, The Bible Line. You can listen to The Bible Line online at wagp.net. We hope that you will join us tomorrow as we continue to search the scriptures.